Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. I just had the great pleasure of talking with Sherm Cochran about the book that he recently co-wrote with Andrew Xie called The Leos of Shanghai. Harvard University Press published this in 2013. This book looks at the internal dynamics of a family called the Leo family, who were based in Shanghai and traveling outside of Shanghai over the course of the first half of the 20th century. So it simultaneously functions as a window into the social, political, cultural history of China and its relationship with other areas of the world in this really tumultuous and really fascinating and transformative period in the history of the world and the history of China. It also chronicles, though, at the same time, the transformation both internally and in terms of the relationships among the individuals that made up this really large, really significant, and very, very powerful business family in China. So over the course of this story, we are introduced to and we follow the lives of uh, family members that include uh, the mother and the father, 12 children, and other people who these individuals come into contact with over the course of their lives, both um, with each other and away from each other. They are falling in love. They're having children in and out of wedlock. They are converting to different religions. They're getting sick. They're being put away in psychiatric hospitals. They are finding wonderful new bonds with each other. They're graduating from prestigious universities. They're brilliant. They're troubled. They are uh, rebelling, and all along the way, it's really a story that unfolds, as you'll hear me describe in a few minutes, with Tishirm as a kind of Downton Abbey, Shanghai edition. So for anyone who loves uh, just reading a really, really good story, and I'm talking about Paige Turner, like cliffhangers at the end of each chapter, fascinatingly plotted out and narrated story, um, this is a book for you. Whether or not you think of yourself as someone who's interested in the history of modern China, it's a fascinating page turner of the story. In addition to that, though, for those of us who are interested in historiographical methods, in how to understand modern China in context, it's a really wonderful way of um, sort of repositioning how we understand the history of the family as a unit and including the internal dynamics of the family in China with respect to the larger units that the family unit is interacting with, the state, different kinds of political units and political leaders, like a transnational community of people who are coming to terms with life in this modern world where they're living in Japan, in the U.S., in England, in China, and trying to form a self, a coherent self, among these different movements and translations. So it's it's a fascinating account, both historiographically, fascinating in terms of narrative. I absolutely loved reading it, and it was a great time talking with Sherm about it. So I hope you'll read the book, um, and I hope you'll enjoy listening to the interview that ensues. We're here today to talk with Sherman Cochran about his new book, The Leos of Shanghai. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Sherm, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. 
Thank you, Carla. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Sherm, could you start us off by saying a little bit about yourself and your background? What brought you to the field of modern Chinese history? I did not get into Chinese studies or even have much interest in China until I was at the end of my college years. Uh, I did not grow up in a family that had China connections, uh, nothing to do with diplomats or missionaries or military people connected to China. I didn't even know any Chinese-American kids when I was growing up. Um, and then I went off to college. I went to Yale and uh, did not take Asian studies in college. Uh, then in my senior year, uh, Yale had a program called Yale in China, which sent two Yale graduates to Hong Kong every year for two years. Uh, I went on that program from 1962 to 64. Uh, under the terms of the program, I taught English. I uh, had free Chinese lessons and low pay, I might add. Uh, and uh, I loved it and got hooked on it and never really looked back. Wow. So going from there to the project at hand, this this latest book that we're talking about is the latest in a long career and a, a long line of really fascinating books and articles and essays. The book at hand is a family history of an exceptionally prominent, and I'll say exceptionally fascinating, and we'll get to that um, in due course, business family in China during the first half of the 20th century. So how did you come to this topic in particular and to this family, and how does this fit within the larger research trajectory of your work? In general, my books have been about businesses in China and Chinese history. Um, as you say, there have been a number of them. Um, I have worked on some other topics, and I've tried to do business history from a number of angles. I was working on a project about networks, business networks in China, when I came upon Liu Hongsheng, who is the key figure uh, in this new book. Uh, I thought of him as a business person, and I was attracted to him because his business records were available to me at an archive in Shanghai. Uh, these records included accounting records, um, business correspondence, memos, all the sorts of things that businesses generate. I wrote a chapter about him for that book on on networks, and it was and the book was published. Um, and not until the end of that book did I come to realize that his family had left its letters, and that became a key source for this book. Um, in fact, I was finishing up my work on the other project, <clears throat> the earlier project, and uncharacteristically finished early. I had a couple of days in Shanghai before I needed to come back to the U.S., and uh I said to the archivist, uh, the Professor uh, Huang Hanmin, the uh, uh, director of the archive, that I had these couple of days. Would he? He knew what I'd been working on. Would he recommend something else? And he said, "Well, did you happen to know that this man you've been looking at as a businessman also was a father in a family that kept its letters?" Uh, I said, "No," and he said, uh, "Well." If you've got time in your hands, let me show you some of the letters. Uh, they absolutely captivated me from the very first time look I took at them. And that's how the project got started. 
So the letter, the cache of letters, as you mentioned in the book, ultimately expanded to about 2,000 letters written between the 1920s and 1950s. Is that right? That's correct. It took a while to collect them, but in the end, it's been, it's now about 2,000. And some of those letters are quite long, several pages. So it's a good volume of documentation. So this is a remarkable collection, and it's generated, um, and, and we'll get to this as we um, get into the narrative, but it's generated a way of telling the story that I've been describing to my husband as kind of as exciting as Downton Abbey, the Shanghai edition. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a page turner, and I think I mentioned this to you a little bit earlier before we started recording, but I would run into the other room after every chapter and go, you'll never guess what happens next. You'll never guess what happens to mother and then run back and read another chapter and then go back. So you've managed to take these letters and weave them into a story that's not only really, really interesting from the perspective of historiographical approach as a window into um, early to mid 20th century in China, but also a really, really fascinating story in and of itself. I think this is something that's a page turner and a, you know, lay in bed and read and, and find out what happens next, whether or not the reader imagines themselves as the, at the outset as somebody who is fundamentally interested in China. It's just a really, really good story um, on top of all these other wonderful things. So let's talk a little bit about, um, if you don't mind, the, the nature of this narrative. So you mentioned early on that you and your collaborator, um, and, and it would be you know, great to hear a little bit about that, collaborator, uh, that collaboration too, Andrew Shea, considered multiple formats for the book, including a documentary history. And, and you mentioned that you actually created um, kind of a, a bit of that for students in your courses, an epistolary novel, a story framed around social scientific theories, among other things. And so can you talk a little bit about your collaboration um, with Andrew Shea and what brought you to this particular format that you decided on in the book? Yes, those are good questions. And uh, on Darton Abbey uh, and you speaking to your husband, let me tell you, I'm going to report what you said to my wife. Uh, she will think that's the highest compliment that could ever be paid to my book. So thank you very much. Uh, now, let's see. My first on collaboration with uh, Andrew Xie, um, I mentioned earlier that I didn't get on to anything Chinese, really, until I got to Hong Kong immediately after college. By sheer coincidence, Andrew Xie was going to the college where I taught English. And uh, although he was not in my English class, he did come to see me on office hours, and we talked about history and our futures. Here, we're about the same age. At that time, I was 21, he was 20. Um, and then a few years later, it turned out that he and I ended up in grad school together. Uh, we both went to Yale Graduate School for Modern Chinese History. We became very close and have had uh, a long and close friendship. After I discovered the letters and began accumulating them um, and trying to figure out how to interpret them for a few years, um, I ran into some letters with calligraphy that I could not decipher. It was, to me, it seemed peculiar, very idiosyncratic. Andrew Xie and I had known each other for a very long time, dating back to my Hong Kong days in the early 60s. And then we had been classmates in grad school. We had also worked together on a book called One Day in China uh, that was published in the 1980s. So we had a lot of experience cooperating, and I 
and our very close friends. Uh, he's a professor of Chinese history at Grinnell College. He just retired last year, uh, uh, as I did. Um, and I showed him these letters that uh, were so difficult for me. I have immense respect for his ability to read texts. I think he is he's a very subtle reader of Chinese texts. Um, sure enough, he figured them out. And in the process, became engrossed in the letters, uh, fascinated by them, as I am. So we decided to team up, and that's how we became co-authors of this book. Great. Now, the individual chapters, so to move from this archive of over 2,000 letters, in addition to um, the other sources that you brought to bear in the story and the other examples of historiographical literature that you brought in, this resolves itself into a series of chapters that all cohere around some kind of pivotal moment or some pivotal debate um, among the different family members that seems like they resolved um, or that seems like it was resolving itself through the letters. Can you talk a little bit about your choice of those chapters? How did you come to the decision to focus on the moments in the history of the family that you did um, just in general? That's a very good question. It's really at the heart of the thinking that I put into this book, uh, believe me, I didn't come to this uh, decision about debates and arguments, family feuds, if you wish, at the beginning. Um, it's where I ended, and it's how the book reads, and I'm glad it reads that way. I think it's the best I can do. But I tried some other experiments, a whole series of them with the letters. I couldn't find a model book for myself that I wanted to imitate. Um, so I tried a number of things. I tried For one thing, I tried a documentary collection. I felt, enjoyed reading the letters very much from the very first letter that I read. And I was hoping to give that same experience to other readers. So I thought, why not just put the letters in other readers' hands? Uh, I, was, I chose as my audience my Cornell undergraduates. Uh, I photocopied letters, and, and, and including translations, and in, all of the letters were in English, either written originally in English or translated into English, and, and put them in my students' hands. My students, very politely, uh, took advantage of the letters in their papers and quoted and cited them and were very nice about it all. They saw how enthusiastic I was. But their complaint was that I didn't give them enough editorial structure, that they needed more guidance, not just footnotes, but something more than that. Uh, I got the message. I tried an epistolary novel as a format. I was at the National Humanities Center one year where I had very intelligent uh, readers on uh, uh, among the other fellows. I offered them some experiments along these lines. Um, you know, epistolary novel, as you, um, as you well know, and your listeners all know, uh, shows how each, uh, every page is from a letter written by somebody, Dear Jim, and a letter for a few pages, followed by Dear Mary, in reply, a few pages. Uh, these are fictional or fictionalized letters. Well, I thought it would be interesting to have a book where the, you had the same kind of an exchange and they weren't fiction. They were the actual letters that had been written by the members of this family. But, you know, I ran into the same problem. My uh, The fellows at the National Manor Center all complained that the letters were great, but that they couldn't place them in the context of the time without more guidance. Mm -hmm. 
So I abandoned that one. I also tried social scientific issues. There are some debates, uh, particularly about uh, women in uh, uh, that have been explored by anthropologists and and women his, women's historians uh, or historians of Chinese uh, uh, women um, that I wanted to uh, investigate uh, issues of exploitation, empowerment, and so on. Uh, they didn't work out either because there was a different problem with them. Once I got into those issues, it seemed as though the, the letters became drained of their vitality. One didn't hear the voice anymore. It was just a case of a family uh, that I thought uh, uh, cost us, uh, undermined the whole project. And Andrew felt the same way, very strongly, that the voices of the members of the family needed to be heard. So these were the various experiments I tried, each of which was a failure in the end, and each of which I rejected in the end, before hitting on this idea of arguments in the family, conflicts in the family, where either two members of the family argued with each other, or two factions in the family argued with each other. came to some kind of of moment of conflict, uh, tried for some kind of resolution, sometimes achieving it, sometimes not. Um, And the suspense, I thought, was of interest as they worked through who would win at the most, uh, at the simplest level. And then at a much more subtle level, to my mind, how does a family work? What are the dynamics of decision making in a Chinese family? Now, in the course of writing the book and doing the research for the book, and we'll get into the details um, in just a moment, did you have any exchanges um, with surviving family members that are related to the people you're writing about? And were any moments, if so, were any moments of those exchanges particularly notable for you as being um, especially gratifying or especially difficult to the extent to which that, you know, you know, you want to share any of this stuff? Yes, this was a a great uh, opportunity for me uh, in the book, meeting family members, following up the best we could. The um, I interviewed. uh, This was a family of father, mother, uh, twelve children, nine boys, three girls. Uh, Let's uh, and I used in the book, as as you undoubtedly noticed, I used the terms father and mother to describe. Uh, the, the father and mother in the family rather than giving their names uh, and I called the children by eldest son second son, third son and so on um, in, in, in the book uh, of these 12 children um, who grew to maturity uh, uh, in this family I interviewed five four of, four of whom are now dead uh, have not lived to see the book uh, produced. That's I'm, I'm sad about that, particularly in a couple of cases where I received immense help from members of this generation who have since died. Um, there's only one of those 12 children still alive, uh, and I interviewed her, uh, to be sure. And then there's the next generation. If father and mother of the first generation uh, let's call them children, although they're in their 90s or dead now, uh, the second generation. Uh, then there's a third generation uh, who do not appear in the book, but who took a keen interest in this project. I met many of them, um, uh, more than 30 
uh, and interviewed almost all of them. Uh, they had memories of their parents and their grandparents, um, and they had materials and photographs that they shared, uh, some of which are used in the book. Uh, so this interviewing experience became rather important part of the whole project. So one of the issues that frames the book is a consideration of power relationships in this family. And so um, you and your collaborator, Andrew Shea, in the course of these chapters that we go through, are considering how members of the family made decisions in light of both um, the a kind of patriarchal nature of the family and also negotiations among them and uh, given various um, notions of duty that they have to each other, to political issues, to others who are outside the family, and an increasing independence of many of these family members. And so we'll see a lot of that play out over the course of the chapters. And so let's get into it. Let's get started. So there are several parts of the book. In part one, Planning a Business Dynasty, is set 1907 to 1932. The first two parts of the book are actually set in the 1920s and 1930s, and this is a period where Chinese could travel relatively freely into and out of their country. So where we are um, in terms of the setting for the family, the father's business empire is growing in the course of these chapters, and he sends his children abroad for educations. So in the course of um, the letters back and forth as the children are going abroad or not going abroad as it may be, the family members are debating decisions that have potentially long-term implications for their careers, their educations, and their marriages, and we'll see some of those implications play out in the coming chapters. So, I've already talked about how fabulous the structure of the book is. It's a complete page-turner, and not only does each chapter look at a part some crucial debate among the family members, but it also ends on a cliffhanger. And so it really makes you want to get to the next one and see what happens. It opens at the very beginning with the marriage of father and mother. This is a really interesting story that uh, that has implications for their relationship later on in the book. So could you start us off in their saga by saying a little bit about father and mother? Who are they and how did they come together? Yes, uh, father and mother are uh, Liu Hongcheng is father, Yes Wu Zhen is mother. Um, both of them were born in the same year, 1888. Both of them were born in Shanghai and grew up and spent their lives there. This is really a Shanghai family on both sides. Um, both of them had as their native place Ningbo. Uh, native place uh, has been a, a, a very carefully considered subject by Chinese historians. <clears throat> it describes a place that is inherited through one's father, much like one's surname is inherited through one's father. It isn't necessarily a place where you were born or where you live, but it is a place of great importance coming down through the inheritance. And both of these, uh, both members of this couple, uh, had as their native place, Ningbo, had as their hometown, Shanghai. Uh, and growing up, uh, as they did through the eight, late eight, 19th, early 20th century, they were the children of merchants. Uh, she was the granddaughter, or a granddaughter of the richest Chinese merchant in 19th century China, a, a very a major figure. Uh, he was from a middling merchant family, uh, a bright young man. He won scholarships to an American sponsored uh, missionary school in Shanghai, both for middle school and college. Um, so they, he had, uh, on his side, uh, training in English 
an international outlook, hopes for a career in business. She had on her side the financial wherewithal of this very rich family, uh, a dowry that was crucial for him as he started out. They were married at age 19, uh, and their marriage survived throughout throughout their lives. And so at one point, actually, after they come together and get married, the mother complains. This is one of many, many points of the book that had me, um, you know, kind of laughing out loud. She's complaining that her mother-in-law cracked her like a walnut to eat the meat inside as a, yes. kind of, as a metaphor for um, sort of wanting the money that's, you know, coming from her family to start this Leo family, what, what winds up becoming a very successful business um, business family. So they both become exceptionally successful. He becomes very successful in business, and she's very successful in producing a ton of children. So there are you know, 12 children in the course of this story. We also see in this early chapter a glimpse of, um, dis- you know, despite she's successful despite this debilitating psychiatric condition that proves to become more and more of a problem in different ways as we go um, further into the story. So she's struggling with a psychiatric condition. She's struggling with um, what may or may not be uh, an addiction to opium, and all of this is happening in the course of developing and nurturing this um, very large family. Okay, so they send their children abroad early in the story and make each of them promise three things. First, to return to live their life um, as an adult in China. Second, to work for the family business in Shanghai as needed. And third, not in any circumstances to marry a foreigner. And we'll see um, in the course of the story that all of these conditions prove problematic for at least one of the children over the course of the story. Okay, so now we've met mom and dad. Um, they, they're married, they're producing children. By the second chapter, they send three sons, second son, third son, and fourth son, um, to England and the, the, um, charge is from the dad, okay, go get you three sons, second son, third son, fourth son, who are 19, 18, and 17, go get admission to Cambridge University. I don't know how you're supposed to do that, but just make it happen. So can, this turns out to be quite an odyssey for them. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, this part of the story? Because it's actually completely fascinating. I found it fascinating myself. Um I think what your summary is very accurate. Uh, I was here's a man who is known for his networks in China, but his networks don't really extend to England, not in any direct sense. He works through one of his British uh, compatriots in Shanghai, uh, an accountant uh, named Matthews, who puts him in touch with some people uh, in the accounting in the branch of the same accounting firm in London. Uh, and so his sons have a guardian uh, who welcomes them when they arrive, but they are groping. And they follow their father's suggestions. Um, they follow. Oh, I'm so sorry, Carla. My screen just went blank. Are you okay? Oh yeah, no, I'm still here. You, I'm still here. You can continue. All right, all right. Let me continue then. I, <laughs> the only stress for me is technological. I'm afraid. <laughs> it's no problem. It's no problem. Uh, so they, these three young men, teenagers. Mm-hmm arrived from Shanghai uh, in England uh, in 1929. Uh, they have instructions from father to get an educations, ideally from Cambridge University. Uh, if not, then Oxford. They want, he wants the most prestigious educations for his sons. They are then to come back to Shanghai, uh, as you mentioned, in, in conformity with the family rules, uh, where they will be prepared to move into the business. One of them is supposed to study law. 
The other two are supposed to study economics. And they have no, uh, I mean, in today's world, we all know how competitive admission is. Well, it's competitive for them, too, particularly because there were not many Chinese uh, in uh, Cambridge or Oxford University, uh, not many openings. And they uh, initially attempted to get uh, access to these universities by making contacts with members of the English elite. Uh, and so they uh, engaged in sports because young men in the elite uh, in England were horseback riders and were tennis players and so on. Uh, they uh, uh, made personal contacts with the uh, minister of China uh, in England, uh, who was the highest ranking diplomatic official uh, from China in England to, to try to get his help through the English elite or through, in this case, the Chinese elite of England, they hoped to get admitted. They were not successful. These contacts did not work. Uh, these, uh, you can imagine how a Chinese father in China uh, believed that these members of the elite would be the key to success, but it didn't work out that way. And only after the boys went in person with their guardian uh, to the colleges of Cambridge, one after another, uh, walking the distance, uh, literally the extra mile, uh, to talk face-to-face -face with tutors, did they finally manage to land places for themselves. And all three were admitted to Cambridge University, and all three graduated from Cambridge University. It's crazy. I mean, this, they, they're doing everything they can. They're studying their pants off. They're making trying to make all these connections. And ultimately, it comes down to them physically going all the way to Cambridge University with their writing master and their guardian and walking door to door from college to college, right? Knock, knock, knock. Here's a letter from a really rich student. Um, can you let us in? Being told, right, that we only take one Chinese student per college for the entrance examination. So they have to keep going. They get turned down by seven colleges. It's just this fascinating story. And ultimately what gets them in is their prowess in sports, among other things. Yes. I mean, just crazy. Okay, so, so And the boys are the boys are writing home about all this. That's how that's how we know uh, that, that they're encountering these obstacles and then writing home to their father to explain what's going wrong, and ultimately, what goes right. Right. So father is really excited. Yay, they all get into their um, three different colleges. And he decides later on in the story that they should become British citizens. And the reason why um, he wants them to do this is to prevent a Japanese military takeover of his business, which is Chinese owned. Now, this doesn't ultimately wind up happening for all kinds of reasons. It doesn't make sense for them. It's not possible for them to apply for British citizenship. But it brings us into the second part of this story in which um, you know, we go from a relatively successful story of these three sons, second, third, and fourth, into a part of the story where things are not so um, successful and easy and get a lot more complicated. So part two of the book um, looks at the period from 1932 to 1937. And this is a period where all kinds of complications arise for these sons. So enter a new son. This is the eldest son. And there's a whole chapter about him. 
He goes to study in the U.S. He's admitted to Harvard Business School. He drops out to go to Wharton at UPenn instead. Um, father says, no, no, no. He's going to do it anyway. And there's a whole story about that transfer. Okay, so basically, like, eldest son is off doing something he wasn't supposed to do, making his own decisions. Then the fifth son comes into the picture. And I'm just summarizing this for, for listeners. There's a whole, like, each one of these chapters is totally fascinating. And we would be here for three hours if I asked you about every single one of the things. So that's why I'm summarizing. So then we go from the eldest son to the fifth son. Fifth son is sickly. He's got tuberculosis. He wants to go to the U.S. and study anyway. So he gets together with the eldest son, who, if you remember, was just doing all the things he wasn't supposed to do and going to Wharton um, at Penn instead of doing what his father wanted him to do. He convinces the fifth son, you don't want to go to this place that father already, you know, set up for you. Instead, you want to come with me and go to Wharton Business School at Penn. So the fifth son, he's really sick. Parents are telling him, no, no, don't do that. You'll get really sick. He does it anyway, winds up getting super, super sick. All kinds of complications ensue. And ultimately, um, he comes back home. Um, again, his, you know, he's fiercely independent, but doesn't quite work out for him very well. Okay, so one of the things, so now here's where we are. We've got the, the three sons who successfully graduated from Cambridge. We've got eldest son who's kind of off doing his own thing and not really following directions. We've got fifth son who's sickly, who has a really bad bout of tuberculosis, and his attempt to go off and be independent um, wasn't, so, wasn't so great either. So now, chapter six and seven, enter um, another child, and we go back to one of the sons. Okay. So after all of this happens, we see some major conflicts arising when the third son and eldest daughter find marriage partners that not only don't make their parents happy, but that could compromise their futures. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) So in chapter six, okay, so let's, so let's look at the third son. Chapter six, we're with the third son and he's, he's a ladies man. He's got no problem with the ladies. He's really handsome. He's really tall and he's really proud of it. All right. And remember, none of the children are supposed to marry non-Chinese partners. He meets a woman named Lian Yen, and um, this and lots of stuff ensues. So can you talk a little bit about this relationship and what happens? Yes. Uh, this, uh, you know, I'm not sure what your family was like, Carla. In my family, I did not write home to my father about my sexual yearnings. <laughs> well, he probably uh, also didn't send a Chinese policeman to come investigate your love life. My father did not send a policeman to investigate. That's true. <laughs> or anybody else to investigate my love life. Uh, so when I read these letters, I was astonished that the, this, the third son would write home saying essentially to his father, I know there's a role. I know I can't marry a Western woman, and I promise I won't do it. But you've got to understand, it's really lonely out here. I'm really frustrated. And man to man, dad, give me some advice. How do I handle this? I was just amazed that he brought this up uh, to his father and that his father then replied and did counsel him and advise him and so on. So all through this chapter, uh, one has this continuing advice about very personal, or what is at least, I think, in in, in the West is considered extremely personal matters, uh, laid out uh, father to son, son to father, uh, every step of the way. 
Um, now, third son is a ladies' man. All of his brothers tease him about it and talk about it, um, and he admits it. Uh, and then on a on a visit home in Shanghai, he meets Lian Yan, uh, who for and, and is attracted to her uh, immediately. He doesn't tell his parents he's attracted, and later, as their relationship develops, and they they both go back. Uh, to England, where she has been raised, uh, uh, they eventually uh, uh, spend time together without telling uh, their parents. And uh, so it's a somewhat secretive relationship in the initial stages. Now, she comes from the richest family in Southeast Asia. Uh, Apparently, the richest family, certainly the richest Chinese, overseas Chinese family, and perhaps the richest family in general in Southeast Asia, uh, based in Indonesia. Um, her fa- her great grandfather was born in China. Her grandfather became very uh, Europeanized, uh, as did her father, uh, and um, uh, and eventually her mother decided to leave Indonesia and move to Europe. Uh, and took her two daughters with her. Um, this, uh, uh, that's where Lian Yen was born and raised, speaking French and German as well as uh, English. Her German was serviceable. Her French was fluent. Her English is native speaker. I have interviewed her. I can testify to that. Um, and um, uh, so they had this kind of cosmopolitan uh, relationship both of them well-traveled, both of them abroad, and each of them with special family issues. Um, hard as it may be for us to believe, this very rich Chinese family, uh, the Liu's of Shanghai, considered Lian's family too rich. Right. And were worried about their son becoming a profligate uh, uh, young man indulging himself instead of sticking to his work ethic as he was expected to do in the Leo family. Uh, they had other doubts about her too. And so they argued, the parents argued with the children about whether they should marry. Uh, the mother uh, in the Leo family withheld her approval, her blessing, right up to the last minute. Uh, finally did at the very end uh, agree to let the marriage happen, although very reluctantly she had never met Lian Yen. Uh, at the time that they were being married in England. Uh, And so she uh, objected. And then in a kind of a double twist, giving away the ending here of the chapter, uh, eventually the two got on very well. One of my favorite documents from the entire collection is translated in this chapter. It's the one where the mother sends off her her demands uh, uh, that if they are going to marry and if there's going to be any even consideration of a blessing for the marriage, then when they get back to Shanghai, Leanne has to abide by these rules. I think there are nine of them. Very strict, uh, very filial uh, very subordinate. Uh, sub- the Leanne is to subordinate herself to mother and father and serve them uh, and capitulate to them on all issues uh, and so on. And this uh, this Western-born, Western-raised Chinese woman marries into the Liu family, comes back to Shanghai, performs those tasks, and eventually becomes very close to mother. 
That's right. And this list, um, I, I forget which exact page it is, but I'll just mention for listeners, go to this list and read it because it includes things like during the first month, she has to serve tea three times a day to her in-laws and the elders. She has to get permission to leave the house and then many, many other things. So it's a great, um, it's a great document. Okay, so we've seen now one difficult marriage situation. Then we go into another difficult marriage situation. And I won't ask you to talk too much about this so that we can get to the next part of the book. But I just want to summarize because this is one of these Downton Abbey-esque chapters. So eldest daughter, she's supposed to marry Song Zan, who's a member of a really, really prominent family. This is the Song family, um, which there's a, a long discussion of um, in, in the Chinese history literature more broadly, and, and you mention it here in the book as well. So she's always been rebellious. She agrees to go study in Japan. She loves it. She comes back, and her parents are all like, wow, she looks really happy and healthy. She must have really loved Japan. What they don't know is that she's pregnant with the child of a married family friend who's 16 years older than her with whom she'd be having an affair. Dun, dun, dun. So dad disowns her. Um, the initial fiance, the Song uh, Zan, is like, no problem. I'll take her back despite all this. The father's like, no, no, no. This initial fiance goes and shaves his head and vows never to marry anyone and goes to a Buddhist monastery. Father still says, no, no, no. He gives up after two weeks and goes and marries someone else later. But the eldest daughter goes, she moves to wait for the married father of her young child to divorce his wife and come live with her. Um, and that's, and then we're left with that at the end of the chapter. So she is disowned by the father at that point, but reconciles with the mother. <sighs> okay. So now part three of the book uh, moves from this really heady period of, um, of complications for the family into an even more complicated period, but complicated for other kinds of reasons. Part three of the book is set in a period that's characterized by the Sino-Japanese War of 1937 to 1945. So the father in this part of the book and some of his children actually flee Shanghai after the Japanese military invasion, leaving behind the mother and the rest of the children. And there's a lot of debates here about marital unrest, about psychiatric breakdown, about business decisions that are really bound up with the politics of the time. And we'll see some of that. Okay, so the sons... This actually marks a turning point in the Leo family because what happens is in late June 1938, a year after the Japanese military invasion of China, father fears he's going to be assassinated by, by both sides of this conflict and he flees Shanghai. Now, you mentioned that this actually um, is a turning point for the family and because he, he doesn't return until 1945 and his long absence actually has really profound effects on decision making within the family that we see play out later in the book. So can you talk a little bit about um, this turning point? Sort of what does this mean for the family and how does this affect the larger trajectory um, of what happens? Yes. Um, it is, I think, a major turning point. Um, he moves first to Hong Kong, which has not yet been invaded by uh, Japan in 1938. Stays there until 19, December 1941 when uh, it is invaded uh, that's the time of Pearl Harbor and the time of the broader Japanese invasion throughout Asia um, and uh, moves from Hong Kong then to Chongqing, uh, a city in western China, about 800 miles from uh, from Shanghai, uh, where he spent the rest of the war, roughly 1941 to 45. 
So all that time he's away from Shanghai. Shanghai has been the business base for his entire uh, operation. He's, he's, his, uh, he's an industrialist. He has technology needed to manufacture cement and matches and briquettes and other products. This technology is not e- easily moved. Uh, so that there's a, there's a strong tug on him to continue to use Shanghai as his base, even though he himself is not there. Uh, he then assigns responsibility for running that Shanghai base to his eldest sons, and uh, particularly the first and second sons. And then the uh, third son moves with him to Hong Kong to run that part of the operation and stays in Hong Kong even after the Japanese invade. Uh, so those three sons uh, become very important to the uh, administering of the of the uh, uh, the industrial empire during the war. Uh, there is there has been some discussion of whether. Uh, those who left Shanghai continued by remote control to operate their businesses in China. Uh, in this chapter, I, I try to uh, show how tenuous that control was. Once the father was out of out of the big city, out of Shanghai, his sons, even though they were only in their early twenties, seized the opportunity to take the leadership and and began making decisions on the spot, sometimes contrary to to his advice. It was this was the point of conflict over which they argued in their letters uh, uh, who would be ultimately responsible for how the business ran. And then the fourth son, uh, who in some ways became the most trusted of the sons uh, during the war, was summoned to Chongqing by the father and joined him there. Two other sons also joined him there. So the three of them um, assisted their father as he then created a new branch of the family business, one based in Chongqing and Western China. That's right. And some of these business decisions are really very heavily embedded in the larger political context of the time. And so there's some tension over whether to ally with Wang Jingwei's collaborationist government. There's some tension over whether to ally with Japanese companies. And so it's really, really an interesting window into the larger social and political history of the time as well. In addition to this, so you've talked about the eldest son, the second son, the third son, the fourth son. There's also a great moment in this chapter, chapter eight, just for listeners, where the fourth son like saves the day by by buying five dodge trucks and making the 2500 mile round trip five times to personally carry equipment from rangoon to chongqing so it's this amazing uh, story that involves driving long distances which i think is amazing anyway because that's something i really hate to do so yay fourth son saving the day yeah, just a just a footnote to that, uh, uh, Carla. That he, these trucks are carrying this technology that he has brought all the way from Shanghai to Rangoon uh, by sea. So it is really a logistical uh, miracle that he managed to bring this off. Uh, and that technology was all put to use in Chongqing or nearby in Kunming in western China during the war. It's an amazing part of the story, and it just gets even more amazing because now we go from the eldest, the second, the third, the fourth, to the sixth son. Now, meanwhile, while all this other stuff was happening, the war on Japan has a really traumatic effect on the sixth son. He had studied in Japan for six years, and while he's home, and and so Japan is kind of a second homeland for him. While he's home in Shanghai on summer vacation in 1937, Japan invades China. Okay, this is the Battle of Shanghai. All right, so basically the war for him 
him pits one homeland against another. So what happens? He converts to Christianity. Well, he gets he gets a job in Chongqing and sends his first paycheck back to his parents in this really emotional scene. He converts to Christianity. He contracts malaria and on his sickbed sends a proposal to another woman that he later decides, no, this probably isn't a good idea. So he's making all of these life-changing decisions, ultimately decides to join the communists. Um, so this is a really interesting moment um, of just profound personal transformation um, for this son. Can you talk a little bit about this issue of the son um, sort of allying with the communists? Now, he does this without the knowledge in, in some parts of the story of his parents. Is that right? How does this play out for the family? Yes, he's. I, I don't. Just speaking personally, I think his mind is perhaps the most interesting one in the family. Uh, here's somebody who I think takes philosophical issues very seriously, and reading through his letters, you see him. For for him, these are not academic exercises. These options, whether to uh, continue his interest in Japan. As you say, he studied there six years, and now Japan has invaded his country. Uh, whether to become a Christian, whether to become a communist, uh, these he's taking these decisions very seriously over a very brief period of time, and really working through them. I think in the letters you see how how he's asking himself what is the solution to wartime China and to the future of China. Uh, growing up in Shanghai, he had uh, he was in a rather protected setting. Even in Japan, he lived in Tokyo, uh, again, kind of an urban setting. Now, during the war, he traveled to Western China and saw rural China for the first time in his life. He was very moved by it. And what's the solution to that? Is, that, is it a Christian solution? Is it a communist solution? Or is it the current government of China, the nationalist government, going to solve it? Uh, I, I feel as though in this chapter, he pours his heart out to his parents uh, in terms that help you see how he's thinking through uh, all these issues. I wanted to just uh, refer back to something that's come up earlier, uh, just to be sure this is made clear. Uh, it is no accident, I think, that this son was sent to Japan. Uh, notice that the father is basically covering all bets when he sends his children off to school. Uh, three sons and a daughter go to England. Uh, three sons and a daughter go to the U.S. And two sons and a daughter go to Japan for education. Uh, this is very systematic planning by parents uh, for education with the aim in mind of a business dynasty that all these children will come back to serve. Uh, and that's one of the themes that's running through the book. Uh, this son is the Japan one. He got the most education. He was fluent in Japanese. Um, and uh, and brought home a deep understanding of Japan. Now, once the war started, he never set foot in Japan again. Mm. It was just as a very young man, he was already done with. After six years there, uh, you know, just one of those one of those real uh, traumatic moments that uh, comes through in 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 the story. That's right, and so. Speaking of traumatic moments, so meanwhile, while this is happening, we've got now the eldest son, the second son, the third son, the fourth son, the sixth son is the one who now is getting interested in communism. We've already talked about the eldest daughter. Um, now the eighth son. Now, while all of this is happening, the uh, and I'm just going to briefly summarize this, the eighth son is battling depression. So he's studying at MIT. While he studies at MIT in the U.S., 
he describes having a nervous breakdown. Okay, he reaches out to his parents. Mother's unhelpful. Father's not around. He turns to help. Um, he turns for help to his brothers. In the course of this, he's actually put into a psychiatric hospital involuntarily, and in one of the letters, he likens his treatment in the hospital to that of a German concentration camp. So he's going through all kinds of issues, um, and there's a whole chapter that is um, based on, or that, that is focused on his personal struggles while all this other stuff is happening with the family. Now, one of the reasons why the father is unavailable to help him at this time while he's going through all this is not just business related. So in the meantime, dun, 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 (laughs) father's going through issues of his own because he started another family with another woman. So while this is happening, he actually takes on a mistress. um, And what ensues is, um, is really, really interesting from the perspective of the family. So he takes on his first mistress, the first one that comes up at least um, that we know about in the book. So mother's freaking out because she's worried that father is going to leave. Um, it's going to abandon her and the family. Keep in mind that at the same time, she's dealing with issues of her own um, and sort of somewhat imbalance, um, imbalance issues. She descends upon the house of this mistress, Bao, raises hell. Bao later breaks up with the father, who goes on and takes up with a different mistress, He Guiying. Okay, so... This actually winds up being a really important part of the story and plays out in all kinds of interesting ways toward the end of the book. So um, can you talk a little bit about this? So what's going on with Father and Hugwe Ying, and how did this play out in particular in the letters for you? Because this is a, a, a touchy part of this family history, and it raises all kinds of insecurity issues. He's keeping things secret from mother about his relationship with Hugwe Ying, but I, I imagine it's coming up in the letters in other ways. And so can you talk about this part of the story? Yes, this this is delicate. Um, as you know, as a historian of China, Carla, we have lots of writing about concubinage in Chinese history. And I made a point not to use the word concubine in this context, because concubines were known to the first wife. In fact, sometimes even selected by the first wife. In this case, father did keep the, the other sexual partners secret from his wife. Um, the, in the first case uh, that you described, uh, the mistress discovered, uh, uh, the uh, mother discovered the mistress and assaulted her. Uh, in the second case, mother never did, uh, while father was in uh, Chongqing during the war, never did dis- uh, confirm that he was with the mistress. Instead, what she found was that he refused to let her mother go to Chongqing to join him. She pleaded with him over and over. And in reading the letters, well, these are love letters. And she's writing to him, I miss you. I can't live without you. Uh, we have a long marriage. It's got to continue. Let me come join you from Shanghai, where I feel imprisoned. These are the kinds of words she uses. Um, and let me come join you in Chongqing, where you are, where you have been for some years now, and where we you'll be as into the future as far as we can see as the war goes on. 
And this goes on for years and years. While reading these love letters one after another, I'll tell you, it is heart-wrenching, just her what she's going through. You mentioned earlier in our discussion uh, her psychiatric difficulties. She talks about this herself. She's in delicate health, uh, both physical and psychiatric, and um, she wants to be with her husband. There's a wonderful photograph that I was very happy to include in the book uh, showing her uh, in Shanghai during the war, sitting on her bed, uh, smoking, and on her nightstand is a picture of her husband. Uh, and there it is. You know, that just kind of summarizes. And she mentions this picture that sits on the bedstand in the letters when she writes. She says, I have your picture on my bed, uh, on my bedstand and, and so on. So this this is very charged emotionally. Uh, ultimately, she appeals when, when her husband simply refuses to let her come join him. She appeals to fourth son, the right hand man of father in Chongqing. Uh, to join with her in persuading Father to let her come. And this gets into a very extended correspondence, first between the two of them, and then between Fourth Sen and his brothers in Shanghai. There is even a point where Mother suggests she would split the family if Father does not honor her wish to let her come join him in Chongqing. Uh, This would be a major move uh, out of her role as a domestic leader in the family with no business or managerial responsibilities into the business side of the family. Because if she split the family, she would be splitting the business too. Uh, this is this is a key role for a woman, kind of agency for a woman in business that I don't remember reading about before. Um, ultimately, that threat that she poses is not carried out. The war abruptly ends with the American bombing, atomic bombing of Japan. Um, and before the family uh, breaks up or is split by mother, uh, father and all the other children return to Shanghai in 1945. So father returns home, he reconciles with mother, and he keeps his other family a secret. Right. And we see um, later on in the story, sort of as the family is dealing with the aftermath of these really uh, dramatic and kind of totally traumatic political, social uh, upheaval these issues of upheaval that they're dealing with politically and just uh, all the moving around, he's now trying to, once he's home, situate his sons um, in advantageous positions with respect to the new government. The sons basically can take care of themselves and and are uh, in... Basically, this is a period where everybody is negotiating their new roles in terms of empowerment vis-a-vis the rest of the family. And things at this point in the story, after everything that we've been through with them, have really changed quite dramatically from the beginning of the story where we had father you know, masterminding this plan, taking care of all of his children, orchestrating where they were going to be, where they were going to study, to now we've got him dealing with adults who have been orchestrating their own decisions for many years now. And they're all coming back together at this point in the study and trying to figure out how to live with each other and how to um, function as a family, as this new kind of family in this new situation. So the fourth son and the father 
receive appointments by the nationalist government as officials for distributing U.S. aid in Shanghai, and they use this opportunity, even though they're not paid, to kind of redirect resources toward their business. So they're working at this point for the business. The eighth son stays abroad. The elder daughter comes back to Shanghai, who's, and she's been very successful with her husband, and she reconciles with the father. And for listeners, recall that she had previously been disowned by the father. Now, at the end, or toward the end of this story, they reconcile. Which leads us to the last part of the book. Now, part four of the book, Adapting to Revolution, 1946 to 1956, finds the Leos in the immediate um, period prior to and the aftermath of the Communist Revolution of 1949. So one of the things that's happening in this part of the story is that the members of the family are debating amongst themselves, with each other, with themselves, over whether they should stay in China, flee, return home from abroad, depending on where they are, where we find them at this point of the story. Okay. So at this point, um, the, the PLA takes over Shanghai in 1949. The father leaves his wife and most of his children and moves to Hong Kong, which was then a British colony. And he spends the next months debating with them over whether he should move back to Shanghai or stay abroad. So, And there were various arguments um, coming from his family members versus his business partners over what he should do. Can you talk about this period for the father and, and this kind of set of debates and these different ways that he was pulled in trying to make a decision that would ultimately affect the future of his family. Yes, I think this is one of the most fascinating moments in Chinese history. Uh, You know, looking back from today, when the People's Republic of China is very much the government of China and securely in place, it's hard to imagine how it looked in 1949. It did not look so secure. It was not clear who would, how long the government would last or uh, what kind of control it would exercise. Even assuming it would last, it was not clear uh, how it would operate. Would, for example, it be possible to have capitalism under communism? Would capitalism be compatible with communism? Or would these two things be at complete loggerheads in direct conflict? These questions become very interesting in light of what's happened now when it is possible to have capitalism under communism in China today. Uh, And so there are a lot of parallels between this earlier period, the late 1940s, early 1950s, and uh, and episodes uh, since then. Uh, A father is trying to decide, he's trying to predict the future for himself and his family. as the communists come to power. In May of 1949, the PLA took Shanghai, his hometown. He flew to Hong Kong, as you mentioned, outside China into this British colony of Hong Kong and stayed from May to November of 1949. On October 1st, 1949, the People's Republic of China was founded as a new government. One thing that really surprised me in the letters was the appeal that the Chinese communists made to capitalists to come back. It's easy to imagine that the new government, communist government, wanted socialism and wanted to be rid of capitalists. But actually, they pleaded with father to come back and with other capitalists, too, in Hong Kong who were trying to decide whether to return to China. Um, His family pleaded with him. His mistress pleaded with him. He got these letters from Shanghai in Hong Kong and brooded over whether to go back. 
finally, a, a, his, his second son, who was the most political <clears throat> under the new government, came twice to Hong Kong to recruit him to come back to uh, uh, Shanghai. And finally, he agreed to do it and moved back and stayed there for the rest of his life. Now, the rest of the book um, follows through um, what happens later on in the story, including the travails of the youngest daughter, um, her relationship with her mother, her relationship with her brothers, her relationship somewhat um, an odd you know, that has odd points to it with a host family in, in Pennsylvania, her eventual marriage, and um, other elements of the story and the way the story plays out for the various family members we've been talking about. So if for, as for what happens next and how all of this resolves itself, listeners are just going to have to get a copy of the book and read the book to find out what happens next. And I will say, um, as someone who's just done this, um, I highly recommend it because the story, as fascinating as it's been up till now, it just continues to be so. So I'll leave a dot, dot, dot um, so that listeners buy the book, find out what's happening to all the um, all the family members, and it's a really interesting resolution. So, Sherm, I've kept you for a long time now. We've talked about a lot of elements of the book. It's a fascinating, fascinating story with all kinds of contributions, um, in addition to being a fascinating story, to the way we think about families and history, the way we think about letters um, as a source for history making, the way we think about what it means to situate the, the mechanics of and the changing mechanics of this unit, the family, within larger units, politically, socially, geographically, um, it's, so there's tons of stuff that's going on in the book that we barely, barely scratched the surface of. And for that reason, um, I absolutely suggest that listeners go and read the book and find out what else happens. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention or perhaps talk about, um, especially perhaps for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Well, you've covered it very well, I think. I, I'm very impressed by the concise summaries you've given of, of some pretty complex material. Um, maybe there's one thing I might say a little more about, uh, and that is um, you have emphasized, I think, quite correctly the narrative uh, in the book. I'm, I'm trying to uh, do justice to letters by letting voices come through and pursue a narrative that uh, is of interest in, 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 in stories that are of interest. Um, in addition, I have in my mind a kind of a scheme for the way this all fits together, and maybe it's worth adding a word about about that scheme. Yeah. Um, I, I so much of what's been written about China emphasizes the power of the patriarch uh, as the figure in the family who dictates, and other members of the family defer. Um. I found in reading these letters that there was some question about the omnipotence of the patriarch. Uh, when he dictated, uh, well, first of all, he didn't dictate exactly. He was a very subtle, uh, argumentative person who uh, made his points without, not very flatly, but rather with, with subtle care. Um, and then, even then, uh, there were many strategies that uh, recipients of his letters used in coping with him, sometimes disregarding him or sometimes taking him on. Uh, and so the tensions and the 
negotiations that went on between Patriarch and other members of the family, his wife, his children, um, I think uh, allow us to maybe reconsider uh, our image of who the Patriarch is. Is he this stern, uh, unbending, uncompromising figure? That doesn't seem to me to describe the patriarch in this family. And does his family capitulate? That doesn't seem to be the case either. Um, And then one last point about this. Uh, There have been a few uh, recent uh, interpretations that bring to light the independence of children in Chinese families. In a sense, these interpretations could be put at the opposite pole. It's not the the patriarch who dictates and and the children who all uh, uh, defer. Rather, it's the patriarch who has to accommodate the quest for independence among these children, especially in the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, well, I did find a lot of evidence of quests for independence among these children. Um, so on the one hand, you've got a patriarch who is interventionist and energetic and does play a role. On the other hand, you've got children who are seeking independence, and yet you don't have a breakup of the family. This family hangs together. For all their arguments, for all their debates, for all the tensions and negotiations, somehow the family remains intact. Nobody is totally alienated. Even those like the youngest daughter, or like the eldest daughter, um, who was disowned, eventually came, came, she came back to the family and father reconciled with her. Um, so I, I think this is a kind of a general scheme within which I've thought about the project and, uh, and, and each of the stories has its own life, I like to think, uh, but could be viewed within this, this scheme. That's a perfect point, I think, upon which to conclude our discussion of this book. And so, Sherm, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure to talk um, about. It's, it was such a pleasure to read, as I think it's probably glaringly obvious in my in my comments and narration of the story. Now that this book is out, and congratulations on what is a book that's going to get, I imagine, an extraordinarily wide readership. I'm certainly going to assign this to students um, as much as I can, and to colleagues. I'm going to suggest that they read it. Now that this is out, though, what's next for you? What project or projects are currently inspiring you? Well, I... uh Thank you very much for those kind words. Uh, I, uh, I'm still, I, I can give you my kind of immediate project and maybe my dream project. Uh, I'm not sure which, you know, uh, my immediate project is this. I, uh, this book, I think I mentioned earlier today that there is a point in the book where father's trying to decide whether to go back to the People's Republic of China, and he's grappling with that decision. And I mentioned how fascinating I found this moment in history. I started looking around to see whether there were other Chinese making that same decision, whether to go back in the late 1940s, early 1950s, uh, especially up to about 1957. Uh, And I found some. Uh, uh, who resembled uh, father in this family, other capitalists, Chinese capitalists. And and, and then I I also discovered that there were some scholars out there working on some of these figures. So I had a conference. Uh, These scholars gave their papers uh, at the conference, and now I'm editing those for a volume uh, on this particular subject. It's called The Capitalist Dilemma Hmm. in China's Communist Revolution. 
uh, to stay, to leave, or to return is the dilemma. Um, so that's that's kind of an immediate project. I'm hoping to have that done within the year and uh, look for a publisher. Mm. Um, now, my dream project, th- this, I... I, I I haven't told anybody about this one, <laughs> and I don't know if this is this is not exactly a, a, a quiet way to announce it. But uh, uh, you know, I would love to find more letters. Uh, I mean, I got very hooked on the letters, uh, as I'm sure has come clear in this interview, uh, in the Liu family. I've never seen another collection of letters like these. I would I would love to find another collection like them. I have my doubts there is such a, a collection out there at all. But even something more modest, uh, something uh, I, I, I just I'm, I or put it this way, I'm going to campaign to try to find letters of this kind, whether I use them or other people might consult them. Um, and uh, I do have my eye on one possibility that uh, has not yet shaped up and so I better not talk tell you too much about it I I don't I'm, I'm negotiating with people I'm negotiating with the family to try to find out more about their letters but so far we have not worked things out and uh, I hope we do well best of luck with that um, Sherm it sounds like a great uh, set of projects and best of luck and I hope we'll find a way to get those letters together so that we'll see another book um, on the letters um, in the years to come so best of luck and thank you so much Thank you very much for this opportunity. It's been a joy talking with you. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.